It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett, editor for Bloomberg Intelligence in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee, marketing analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Digital payment services are shaking up the way we buy and sell both online and offline. Apple and Google Pay are leading the charge. But smaller upstarts are also pushing hard for a piece of this lucrative $2 trillion market. All are nipping at the heels of the big traditional banks, which were once the undisputed masters of payments. Their credit cards now face unprecedented rivalry, their profits are at risk, and Australia has become a key battleground. What does this mean for Australia's big banks? The trends after the pandemic have been startling. It's very hard now for the banks to regain the initiative here. Let's bring in Matt Ingram, Senior Financial Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in Sydney. Matt, welcome. G'day, Tom. G'day, John. Great to be on board. Matt, digital wallets have been around for years. Recently, they've gone from being background noise to serious contenders for Australian banks. Are we at a tipping point for digital payments? John, it's, uh, it's an exciting time for payments. Uh, Jack Baxter and I in Sydney have done a, a real deep dive on, dive on these trends recently. And, and the pandemic was a game changer for payments in Australia, particularly for small business. You may recall prior to lockdowns, many small businesses were cash only. You know, think your local sushi shop. Uh, they wouldn't have accepted cards at all. Now most do, either through a bank-provided terminal or something like a square terminal. Now, behaviour changed substantially across the retail space during the pandemic. And I think that trend is embedded now. Many more people are using wallets multiple times a day versus perhaps once a day for their bank's app, and they're virtually not visiting the branch at all. I think that trend has tipped the balance away from banks, and I'm not sure how they're going to regain the initiatives. So Matt, can you provide some numbers? What percentage of total consumer sales are now purchased using digital wallets like Apple Pay and Google Pay versus traditional credit cards? John, the trends after the pandemic have been startling. Wallets jumped from about 3% of retail sales in 2018 in Australia to 12% in 2021. And we think that's substantially higher again in 2022. Obviously, it's pretty popular for e-commerce transactions. It's about 26% of total. But I think the trend that worries banks is the jump from 2% of in-store sales to 11%. Now, that's the traditional domain of banks and credit card providers like Visa and MasterCard. CBA said that about 80% of its wallet payments are made by tapping an Apple device, either a watch or a phone. That's an amazing competitive advantage for Apple, 
given they had just 56% of the market share of phones in Australia in 2021. Now, this suggests to me that there's still significant room for wallet uptake to continue. Matt, was the rise of digital payments inevitable given the march of technology, the evolution of technology? Is there anything the banks could have done to prevent themselves from becoming so vulnerable? Well, thanks, Tom. Look, it's probably unfair to say they're asleep at the wheel, but I think they were fighting a fire on multiple fronts. Uh, They were not only focused with scaling down their branch networks, they initially were focused on ramping up ATMs only to ramp down ATMs when they realized that ATMs are an expensive way of interacting with their customer. Uh, they They were very much focused on increasing card transactions instead of cash transactions. The money they invested in getting out of branches and, and doing some kind of transitional step could have been spent on going in and being strong and leading digital. Look, that's what they could have done. They could have adopted the true digital technology, not just sort of transferring money online from one account to another, but actually facilitating digital payments like we're seeing from Square and, and other companies like that. So I think there's two sort of tailwinds that are going to continue this trend. The first is that Android penetration is extremely low. And the second is that Australia, which is a fairly tech-savvy market, uh, is still lower in penetration than the US. So Matt, was this a case of consumers going into shops and rather than taking out their credit cards from their wallets, they just tap their phones to pay? The sort of the pop survey that I've done around the office and certainly my own spending habits post-pandemic, it's that and some. Uh, I, I pay for the MRT in Singapore by tapping my phone. Uh, I, I buy sushi by tapping my phone. Uh, I buy a case of wine by tapping my phone. It's, it's everything from a $1 transaction to a $500 transaction. And I think that's fairly typical of, of, your, of your average smartphone user. So can you talk us through the economics? If customers pay using their digital wallets versus a credit card, uh, a physical credit card, how would this impact the revenue for banks? There's two sides to that equation, John. Uh, we, we think the payments business in its entirety in Australia is about $2.5 billion, or at least the, the, the retail point of sale payments business is about $2.5 billion. The cost of the tapping is about $600 million a year. So the banks don't want you tapping your phone. The real rub, though, is that the banks are losing ownership of their customers. Once upon a time, uh, in the days of bricks and mortar, the relationship was fortified by bricks and mortar branches where you had to go into a branch to deposit your money. Uh, and, and the relationship was a very solid, very sticky one. And I think inadvertently what the banks have done is they've handed over ownership of that relationship to Google and Apple. And they've put Google and Apple in a position where they can be disintermediated because the customer is no longer having a relationship with the bank. They're having it with the wallet provider. But that, that gets accentuated if the back end, if the pipes of the payment network also move away from traditional channels onto some form of blockchain functionality. Uh, and there are providers that are, that are exploring that already. Two, two pretty key examples, I think, that are exciting a lot of pra- payments practitioners. Shopify's already adopted a lightning functionality. So Shopify's got about 2 million customers globally. Uh, their B2B payments can now be done over the blockchain virtually instantaneously at virtually no cost. Uh, that does give the functionality now for Shopify to bypass banks and card companies completely. Strike, which is another another solution, is also offering, again, payment channels that bypass bank networks completely. They're offering FX products. 
uh, and, and FX is a hugely lucrative, very untransparent business. And so those are two examples of where the banks have already lost the initiative and, and where this sort of re-intermediation to become disintermediation of the banks could, could eventually happen. Does it surprise you how quickly these new payment trends took off and how quickly they were accepted? I think, um, look, I wouldn't call myself a visionary, Tom. And so I, I think the wallet makes sense. It's extremely convenient. Buy now, pay later, I think is extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's created a, a seemingly a new market out of thin air. Uh, younger borrowers, I think, are quite cynical of the big banks after the global financial crisis. I think they're very scared of credit cards. Matt, let's talk about BNPL or buy now, pay later. Give us an idea as to how this fits into the broader matrix and how these providers manage credit risk with regard to the consumer and the merchant. And how big a threat does buy now, pay later pose to banks? So just quickly to explain how it works, it's it's a service provided by the likes of, uh, of Klarna or, or Afterpay or Zip. And it's actually a service provided to the retailer. So the payment occurs between the retailer and that provider. It's sort of something like 4 to 6% of the transaction value. That's versus about 2% for a credit card transaction. So the relationship there is between, between the buy now, pay later company and the merchant. And then the customer at the other end pays the ticket price. It could be the, it could be the markdown uh, Boxing Day sale price. They don't wear any cost at all from the transaction. A, a key part of that buy now, pay later relationship is that they stipulate to the merchant that there's no pass on of the fee. Uh, that creates a sort of an arbitrage. They can charge what they want. They're not competing with the 2% fee that credit card companies charge. Look, we did see a massive a massive uptick in, in, in credit issues across the sector last year from extremely low levels in 2021. Uh, and, and certainly their credit quality is worse than your traditional sort of consumer finance providers. But there's still tweaking going on in the risk models. Zip did a major re- overhaul of its of its credit models last year, which did impact its growth in the second half of 2022. But their tr- their credit's trending back towards about two percent of transaction volumes. And given the significant margins they're making, they're mar- making a six percent gross margin on that transaction, and and the operating costs are, are extremely low, so that they can afford to take that two percent credit haircut. So. The trillion dollar question, Tom, is what happens when interest rates really bite in 2023 and 2024. In, in terms of the product, it's it's a fairly different demographic as well. It's tends to be a younger demographic. Uh, they're using it as a savings plan. I can't buy my my new dress or my skateboard or my bicycle today. I don't have the cash, so I'm going to spread that over three pay cycles of three fortnights. And so it's... I think seen as a savings plan by a lot of the users and the, and the company has said there has been no change to that trend. So look, I think it's naive to think that this industry will be immune from credit pressures as interest rates really start biting. But the business model, I think, is resilient. I, I think the business model is getting a, a harder rap than, than is due. Matt, based on your logic, both Buy Now, Pay Later or BNPL, as well as the digital wallets really thrived during the pandemic. Now we're coming out of the pandemic. Do you think these trends will reverse? It's a huge question, John, not just for buy now, pay later, but for wallets and e-commerce generally. Uh, it's, it's one thing when somebody's sitting at home 18 hours a day, work, play, recreation in front of their computer in their living room. 
Uh, I think something that gives a bit of comfort to buy now, pay later volumes is that they did stay very healthy in 2022. Uh, people went back to work last year and certainly the last six months, uh, I think would have given the providers some hope that the business is sustainable in an environment where people aren't parked at their desks at home most of the time. Uh, the wallet trend offers convenience. It puts all your cards in one place. And, and, and amazingly, I think the trend that happened over the pandemic is many retailers now only accept credit cards where four years ago cash was preferred. So if you're in the habit of tapping your phone, every retailer you walk in now is going to accept it. I think the only way banks arrest this trend is, is, is as I said before, I think they need to embed some kind of NFC or, or, or tap to pay technology within their own ecosystem. Uh, when I look at where the banks have gone with this, all of the Australian banks have, have spent a good chunk of the last four years fighting with Apple and working a way that they can actually be present on the Apple platform. And, and perhaps in hindsight, that energy would have been better spent having their own tap to pay functionality in their own ecosystem. Matt, you're painting a picture of a brave new world in digital commerce and digital finance. Where does cash stand in this scenario you're describing? Yeah, Tom, it's interesting. Um, I think most people are frustrated with cash, to be honest. If, you, if you're asked by your children to bring a gold coin donation for, uh, for the Easter hat parade or, or some kind of tuck shop at lunchtime, it, it normally um, necessitates a race out to an ATM and then a trip to the coffee shop to get some change. Um, I think most people now are actually very short on cash, and I think that's here to stay. Matt, give us a glimpse into your crystal ball. What do you see five to 10 years down the road? The dynamic between the banks, the digital payment systems, how does the interplay between them unfold? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Look, it, it, it's, it's a good segue into something we haven't spent as much time talking about as, as we could have maybe, and that's, that's the impact of, crisp, of crypto on this, on this theme. Uh, so where do I see things in five to 10 years? Uh, I think uh, Visa and MasterCard's stranglehold on payment networks will be at least weakened. I think um, there's, a, there's a variety of different settlement methods available over the crypto blockchains, and I think those might eventually become the default. Our, our crypto analyst here in Sydney, Jamie Douglas Coots, certainly thinks that in the longer term, those, those settlements over the blockchain networks uh, are going to become fairly commonplace. And so... That gives the opportunity for businesses, for consumers to transact instantaneously at much lower cost. So, so that's number one. I think the pipes at the back of payments become far cheaper, far quicker, and, and operated outside the oligopoly of Visa and MasterCard. The, the second thing I think is, is, is the horse is bolted now and wallets are established. And I think wallets will continue to be the predominant way that people will pay for things. Uh, whether that's via your phone or your watch or, or whatever, but I think the, the, the trend of people tapping plastic, uh, plastic cards is, is one that's going to, going to decline further. I think deposit balances for banks, particularly the cheap transaction deposits, uh, are under threat globally. Uh, I think customers are becoming far more savvy and they've got access to far more information than they would have had uh, in our parents' generation. And, and so customers know that they're getting a raw deal, parking their deposit in a bank for no interest. Uh, they don't want to park all that cash there, and neither does a small business. A small business, I think, is also probably more savvy in that respect. And so I think the deposit franchises, the banks get eroded. What does that mean for the sector? Look, I think it means higher funding costs on average. I think 
This access to extremely cheap funding, certainly for banks in developed markets, is going to be something that's challenged. And so through the cycle, I think the only thing that happens there is that banks' margins get constrained. I think a bank business model is still something that's extremely sustainable. Uh, but, but the wash up of that is that banks' payments revenues get eaten. I think banks' deposit franchises get cannibalised a little bit. And I think their, their earnings that they can make on those deposit franchises get constrained. Uh, and, and overall, I think the profitability of the industry, the banking industry certainly um, may be pressured. Man, a lot of names stand to profit from digital payments. Apple, Google, Square, Zip, Shopify. Is there an easy way for investors to get exposure to this space? Uh, look, digital payments is, is going through exciting times and, and we're quite excited with the, with the positioning of that within Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we've created a digital payments basket over the last couple of years. That's a method for investors to get exposure to the largest and, and most sensitive companies to digital payments globally. We offer a variety of solutions via our, via our partners to invest in that theme, uh, and it's something we're extremely excited about. Uh, Matt, final question. The Aussie stock market is dominated by banks. If you look at the market cap, I think four of the biggest six are belonging to the big four Australian banks. Given all these challenges, do you think this will still be the case in five years from now? Yeah, gee, it's a good question, John. Um, uh, I think um, again, if I had a dollar for everyone, every time someone had called the the end of the the oligopoly of the big four Australian banks and their dominance of the Australian stock market again, I think I, I'd be I'd be retired on the beach. But look, I think they've still got a substantial economic moat. This sounds like I'm having a bet each way. I've spent the last twenty minutes talking about the threats to them, but their economic moat is still huge. Their deposit franchises are significant. They may shrink but uh, they're, they're clearly not going to go to zero. Uh, they've got a significant funding advantage um, on the back of the Australian government's very strong credit rating. Customers are fairly mature in the relationships that they have with them, and they're very sticky. And at least for the next two to three years, higher interest rates give them a massive lift in profitability and in profit. So look, the, the valuations held up well last year. They, they outperformed a fairly weak Australian market. Despite the market volatility, despite you know potential threats from a, from a, a pending recession as interest rates really bite, and look, I think in the absence, John, of a massive credit crunch that might be on the back of the rate hikes, and, and that's not our base case, that's very unlikely in our opinion. Uh, in the absence of a massive credit crunch, I think the outlook for Australian banks remains very healthy. Matt Ingram, Senior Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Matt, some fascinating material and a compelling glimpse at the way technology is changing how the way we buy, sell and shop. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, John. It's certainly exciting times and uh, I guess watch this space. I'm Tom Corbett, Editor with Bloomberg Intelligence in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.